Merry Christmas. So good to see you all this morning. It is great uh, to be together with you, uh, having our two churches in the same service. What a special time, what a special morning, both for that reason and because it's Christmas. Let's pray as we turn our attention now to God's word. Bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you that we can come together as your people this morning and worship you, to give you thanks and praise for your coming, for all that you have done on our behalf. Lord, we ask and pray that you would be at work this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. You work in our hearts to help us to see afresh the great glory of what you've done and that we would respond with praise and worship today. We ask it in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, it is Christmas Eve, and that means there's only one more sleep till Christmas, and that means presents. I'm hoping, truly hoping, that you all get what you want for Christmas this year. Of course, there's always that awkward transition year where you stop getting toys and you start getting socks. That's a tough year. When it comes to gifts, I've had doozies, many doozies over the years, both good and bad, both both sides of that spectrum. I think one of the worst gifts uh, that we ever actually got was a, a wedding gift. I know that you're supposed to be thankful for whatever it is that you receive, but someone for our wedding decided that we needed a, a statue of a little child, and that wasn't enough. They thought, I'm going to spray paint it green and gold. Green and gold. I think it was because those were the colors of my university. Um, it was both ugly and useless. We didn't have a lawn to put it on, and even if we did, I don't think that we would have displayed it anyway. This is why it can be dangerous not shopping off the list. It's a risk. It is a risk to go off off of the list. And that's the whole reason that wedding registries and Christmas lifts were invented in the first place. I mean, somebody was like, okay, I'm going to make this real easy for you. Nobody wants a gift that they don't need or don't want. On the other hand, when we get a a gift that we really do want or need, it is a great joy to us. I remember getting a bike when I was a kid, a dirt bike that I had wanted, but it was winter, snowing, can't ride it outside. So my dad, who was a teacher, took me up to the middle school and opened it up so that I could ride my new bike in the halls of the school when nobody was there over Christmas break. It was awesome. So much fun. It's great when you get that gift, that perfect gift, when someone who really knows you gives you that gift, or they're smart and they just shop off the list. Now, there are terrible gifts, there are those perfect gifts, and then there is the ultimate gift. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the greatest gift of all. He is what we really, truly need. He is what we are ultimately searching for 
what we ultimately want, even if we don't yet realize it. This morning, I want to look at four gifts that Jesus brings to us in his coming to earth. They're all gifts that we need. Now, when we open a great gift, we rejoice. Kids are the best for this because they don't hold back their excitement. And I'm hoping that as we see these gifts this morning, your response will be like that of a kid. You'll rejoice and you won't hold back your excitement at what Jesus has done. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18 this morning. For those of you who are just joining us or haven't been with us, we've been working our way through John chapter 1 in our Christmas series this year. And so today we come to the end, John 14 through 18. John doesn't focus on the the history of the Christmas story. He focuses on the theology, the rich meaning of Christmas. And we're going to see that again today. The message for us is this, hail the incarnate deity. To hail Jesus means to praise him with great joy, with enthusiastic approval. Praise him with great joy. It's what we were just singing. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Amen? This morning we'll look at these four gifts that we receive because of Jesus, the word, he became flesh and dwelt among us. Four gifts that will lead us hopefully to adore him. Jesus came to reveal the Father that we might know him, his glory, his grace, and his truth. So let's look at this first gift. You have the gift of God's presence with you in Jesus Christ. Through Jesus we have fellowship with God. Now the word we've been told was God and was with God and all things were made through him. And now we come to verse 14 and we read this most astonishing truth. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God incarnate incarnate in the flesh is what that means God became a man the creator came and lived among the creatures that he himself made now he never stopped being God he's fully God and fully man at the same time for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily Colossians 2 9 he is Emmanuel God with us So he's fully God, but he's also fully human. He's experienced what it's like to be a human, and he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. That first Christmas, the word became a baby, and he was helpless. Jesus needed to be nursed and swaddled and cared for. As a man, Jesus grew hungry and thirsty. He grew weary, and he wept. And of course, he died. He was also tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin, Hebrews 4.15. So Jesus is able to sympathize with us as humans in a way that he could not before. So whatever you are facing, Jesus sympathizes. Jesus can sympathize in our distress, in our pain, 
in our trials, in our temptations. And he is moved to help. That's why we're told to draw near to the throne of grace, not timidly, but with confidence to find the mercy and grace that we need to help us. Hebrews 4.16. The incarnation means that Jesus is with us and cares for us and will give us the grace that we need in whatever situation we face. That is a great comfort. But there's something far more important to Jesus being able to sympathize with us. It is necessary for our salvation. Jesus had to become a man in order to atone for our sin. Because it was man that sinned, it has to be a man that pays the penalty for sin. And so the Bible says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. It is a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2.17. He had to, it says, he had to become truly man so that he could suffer and die in our place for our sins. But he also had to be God because only then could Jesus bear the weight of God's wrath and secure our forgiveness and our righteousness and our life. So he came as a man so that he could reconcile sinners to a holy God. And that word that we see, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is more literally translated tented or tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the place where God's presence dwelled in glory. The tabernacle and later the temple was the place where God came to meet man and where man came to meet God. The place of revelation, the place where sacrifices were offered for sin to bring reconciliation and peace. When Jesus came, he was God's tabernacle. Emmanuel, God with us in glory. Now it is in Christ that man meets God and that God meets man. It's in Christ that we have fellowship with God. Now, the life of Jesus, John has made abundantly clear, did not begin with the virgin birth that night in the little town of Bethlehem. He has a backstory, <laughs> and we see that it begins before time with God in heaven. He existed as eternity as God. I want to remind us all this morning that your story also does not begin with your birth. An essential part of your backstory took place long before you were born, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. Their sin led to the fall. It's why this world we live in is broken. It is why you and I have a sinful nature. It is why you and I sin, why people do not believe in or honor God, why you lie and get angry and are selfish and many other things. You see, Adam and Eve had this unhindered, this direct fellowship with God in the garden, in God's presence, but that relationship with God was broken by their sinful rebellion. Because of their sin, death entered the world and they were estranged from God. They were cast out of the garden and from God's presence. That's your backstory, you and I. And the Bible then is essentially the story of what God himself is doing to restore mankind into right relationship with himself. And that's our greatest need because just like Adam's 
Sin, our sin, brings God's judgment and separates us from him. It makes us his enemy. The first and greatest gift that we have from Jesus is forgiveness and peace with God. That's what Jesus coming to earth means. And we receive that gift by faith. We turn from our sin and put our trust in Jesus Christ to save us. Through Jesus, we're made right with God and have fellowship with God. You no longer have to travel to a temple or go through a priest. We don't go to a place to meet with God. We go to a person and his name is Jesus Christ. You have direct access to God's presence anytime, anywhere through Jesus Christ. In Christ, you have the gift of God with you now and forever. Second, you have the gift of God's glory in Jesus Christ. The tabernacle is where the glory of God came down. Now that glory comes down in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14 again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says we've seen his glory. Who's we? We is the apostles and all of the first disciples who walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry. They saw his glory. They witnessed it firsthand. And John, one of those eyewitnesses, wrote down what they saw so that we might believe in Jesus. How did they see his glory? They saw his glory in his earthly ministry. First, in his signs that he did. So after Jesus for example, turned water into wine, we read this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him, John 2, 11. Yet most of all, Jesus was glorified and he glorified God in his death and resurrection. And so just before his arrest, Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. John 17, 1. Now, of course, Jesus had glory in heaven with God before he came, and he took up that glory again when he returned to heaven. And his glory here is described as glory as of the only Son from the Father. Jesus is the one-of-a-kind Son of God. He is unique. Yes, every believer is a child of God, but we are not gods. We're not little gods. Only Jesus is the divine Son of God. His glory is the very glory of God. And it was seeing His glory in His life and ministry that they knew Jesus is the only Son of God. It's by seeing that they knew he was God's son, especially his death and resurrection. So when Jesus died and the whole earth shook, the centurion said, truly, this was the son of God. As Paul said, he was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Romans 1.4. However, not all who saw his signs believed the glory of Jesus was not seen by everyone, only those who saw with the eyes of faith. The word seen here in this verse is perhaps better translated perceived, since many saw but only a few perceived the true significance of what Jesus said and did. This is why it's better to see Jesus by faith than by sight. 
because there were those who saw Jesus's signs, his wonders, and yet they lent their efforts to crucify him. But if you see Jesus Christ by faith, it leads to your salvation. And as believers, when we see his glory, it leads us to worship. His glory is a gift because it takes the focus off of us. It's not about us. It's about him. We need a purpose as human beings that is beyond us, a vision of glory that goes beyond us, that's greater than us, a purpose greater than us. I have a, I have a hammer here. What is this for? Hammering nails, yes. This hammer is to pound nails. That's what it's for. Now, how good would this be if I tried to use it to get food out of my teeth? <laughs> not very and I'm not even going to try because I don't want to chip my tooth in front of all of you. It would be frustrating and painful if I tried to use it that way. Now, what is this? I don't know if you can see this. It's a toothpick. What's this for? Picking food out of your teeth. But how, how will it work if I tried to use this to pound nails? Not very good. It will be frustrating and painful. The point is this. The purpose for which we were created is God's glory. If we try to live for our own glory, it will be frustrating and painful. It's only when we live for God's glory that we find our joy. Yet Jesus' glory is seen in an unexpected way. His glory is seen in him humbling himself, coming to earth, his self-sacrifice, his service, his dying on the cross. That's where we see his glory. And if we're going to glorify him, we need the same humble mindset of service. So as you celebrate Christmas tonight and tomorrow, praise, praise Jesus. Give thanks and praise to him. His glory should lead us to worship, just like the shepherds who went home glorifying and praising God for what they had seen, just as it had been told them. Sing, sing his praises, but serve. Look for ways to serve those around you. That is one of the ways that we live for the glory of God, just as the Son of God did for us. Third, you have the gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 14. It says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Then verse 16, jump down to verse 16, picks up that thought. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. They saw Jesus's glory because from his fullness, they received grace upon grace. Now, we talk a lot about grace in the church. Grace is God's undeserved goodness. It's God being kind to us when we don't deserve it. And we see his grace most in salvation. We don't deserve forgiveness or a place in heaven. We cannot earn or work our way to heaven. God gives salvation as a gracious gift that we receive by faith as we've seen this morning. Yet everything that you have is a gift of God's grace. Everything. 
The Bible says, what do you have that you did not receive? Every good and perfect gift comes from God the Father. Everything that you have is undeserved goodness from God. God's grace also sustains us. When Paul asks God to remove the thorn from his side, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God's grace also empowers us. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God's grace gives you everything that you need to do everything that he asks. God's grace also trains us for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. You see, the same grace that saves also sanctifies. And as Christians, when we sin, we run to God's grace again and again for forgiveness. God's grace saves us, preserves us, forgives us, sanctifies us, sustains us in our trials, strengthens us to obey, and supplies all the good that we have. God's grace is truly amazing. And it's not just for a few special Christians. John says this grace is for all disciples. He says, we all receive grace upon grace. All Christians have this grace from God. So just like a bucket receives water from the fullness of a well, we receive grace upon grace from the fullness of Christ. It's like those little fountains at the water parks. They're always shooting the water up and they never stop. Even if you put your foot on one, it comes up another hole or it comes squirting out the side. You cannot stop that water. It flows, unstoppable, unending. That's the grace of God. It's like a fountain in Jesus Christ. It flows endlessly, unstoppable to you. It overflows to you. So look to Jesus for the grace that you need to uphold you in your weakness, to defend you in temptation, to forgive your sins, to enable your obedience, to direct your steps. In short, for everything that you need. I love that God's grace is all-sufficient and all-surpassing. What does that mean? It means that if you are facing a level eight trial, God is not going to meet that with level three grace. He's going to meet it with eight or nine or ten grace. God's grace to you is never lacking. Never and personally, it's been God's grace that has captured my own attention this month. I've been so amazed and so thankful for God's grace, especially in forgiving my sin. I'll tell you, we need God's grace in my house. I don't know about your house. Somehow our house is full of sinners. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to admit that recently I got angry with my wife, Sarah, in front of the kids. And it caused a lot of hurt. The kids are trying to, to help by speaking truth to me. That's humbling. 
especially as a pastor. Dad, don't you remember what you said at men's ministry? Oh, thank you, son. I'll tell you, I felt like a total failure as a husband and, and as a dad in that moment. The only good that came out of that was being able to model repentance. At dinner that night, we talked as a family about God's grace and his forgiveness and what we do when we sin, how nobody is perfect, and when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I thanked the kids and encouraged them for speaking the truth to their dad because that took some courage to do that. So God brought some good out of it as he does because he's gracious, amen. But the next day I was still really discouraged by it all. Sarah asked me about it and I told her and she pointed me back to God's grace. She said, Jesus paid for that sin. God has forgiven you. I am so thankful that throughout our marriage, there have been many times that she has been a tangible expression of God's grace to me. Like Jesus, grace incarnate, grace with skin on. You see, the grace that we receive from Jesus is the same grace that God calls us to extend to each other in forgiveness. And we need to point one another to God's grace again and again and again in everything that we face, in every situation. But there's more to this phrase, grace upon grace. John says we've received grace upon grace for or because the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is not so much a contrast, it's a comparison. So it's not that there was no grace or truth in the Old Testament, there was. But the grace and truth that we have in Christ is greater. It's grace upon grace in the sense that it surpasses the grace of the Old Covenant. So what the Old Testament foreshadowed has arrived. What the, what the Old Testament promised has been fulfilled. It's the difference between December 1st and December 25th. December 1st is great because you have the announcement, hey, Christmas is coming, and that's good. That's exciting. But December 25th, Christmas is here. That's the difference. There's grace and truth in the Old Testament law and sacrifices, but what they had in type, we have in truth. So Jesus the true, is the true Passover lamb. He is the true manna. He is the true rock, and so on and so on. The law could not give life or make us righteous because we cannot keep it. What that means is that every single one of us is on the naughty list. There's only one name on the nice list. It's Jesus. And in him we have our righteousness. The law could not change our nature. It can only point out our sin. It can only point out how we've failed. It can only point to our need for Jesus. The law, as one Puritan said, the law might chain up a wolf, restraining it, but Jesus changes the wolf's nature, transforming it. That's the power and the hope of the gospel. 
In Christ, we have a new heart. We have a new spirit. And even though we're not perfect, we have the power of the spirit to walk in new life. The point that John is making here when he says grace upon grace is that there is an all-surpassing grace and truth that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And in that sense, it is grace upon grace. So finally, then you have the gift of truth in Jesus Christ. Specifically, when we say truth here, this is talking about Jesus Christ as the ultimate revelation of God because of his unique relationship to the Father. So look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God. That is a reference to Jesus, where it says, the only God. No one has ever seen God, the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Nobody has seen God, not even Moses, when God made his glory pass before him. God is invisible, and Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. So much so that Jesus could say to his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. God makes himself known, finally and ultimately, in a real historical man, Jesus Christ. And so we read long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Because Jesus is God the son who is at the father's side, he is able to reveal God in an unparalleled and ultimate way. It's through Jesus Christ that we come to know God. Not like you know that two plus two is four. Not like you know that Springfield is the capital of Illinois. Not like you know facts, but the way that you know your friend as a person. And that is the glorious truth. Through Christ, we come to know God himself. Because God himself, who made all things became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ came to reveal the Father to us that we might know him, his glory, his grace, and his truth. That we might have joyful fellowship with God forever. That is what we need most of all. So let's treasure up these things and ponder them in our hearts. Let's praise God like the shepherds. But this Christmas, I want to I leave you with this. This Christmas, will you be a one or a nine? Will you be a one or a nine? Once Jesus healed 10 lepers, but only one turned back, praising God, falling on his knees, giving thanks and worship to Jesus. Jesus asked him, where are the other nine? Then he said to the one, rise, go on your way. Your faith has saved you. You see, the nine were healed, and no doubt they rejoiced in their healing. But they missed the ultimate gift that had been right in front of them. Only one saw the glory of the Lord by faith and was saved. Only one praised God, worshiping at Jesus' feet. See, Jesus is both gift and 
and giver. So tonight, tomorrow, will you be a one or a nine? Jesus is the greatest gift ever given. Receive him by faith. And once you have him, worship him. Yes, yes, let's celebrate and rejoice and, and, and take joy in all of God's good gifts to us. But let's not miss the giver. Let's praise God with great joy this Christmas. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for what you have done in coming to rescue us. Lord, we confess that we often lose sight of the great wonder of Christmas and we ask that you'd give us a fresh vision of your glory that we might adore you and praise you and give you worship and thanks as you deserve. Lord, we thank you and praise you that we have grace upon grace in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you bless each one as we go about our Christmas celebrations with our family, with our friends. Let all that we do be done for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.